Hey everybody, welcome to Sound Bombing. I created this show for people who want to experience a radical, life-changing journey through the sounds of my diverse guests. I hope that each sound you hear on this show will strengthen your faith, encourage your dreams, and challenge you to awaken the greatness within you. Drop the bomb. Drop the bomb. We're going to drop the bomb. This is a journey into sound. A journey which along the way will bring to you new color, new dimension, new values, and a new experience. Children account for the fastest growing segment of the homeless population. While families and shelters work to fulfill the basic human needs, food, clothing, and shelter, the educational needs of children experiencing homelessness are often pushed to the side. To discuss this phenomenon with me is my good friend, Rebecca Beach, Program Director at Project Connect. Rebecca began her career in the fall of 20. 2000. Okay, Rebecca began her career in the fall of 2000 as a social worker for the Department of Jobs and Family Services. During this time, while managing one of the community outreach initiatives, she became aware of a population of youth who were in need of services but did not meet the standard qualification criteria, as they were not in the care of a parent or legal guardian. Inspired to assist these young you, young people in assessing the help that they so desperately needed, Rebecca began working with the Cincinnati Public Schools. Project Connect as the program director to streamline access to supports. During the course of this work, it quickly became evident that her passion was in serving this population, and Rebecca soon joined the team at Cincinnati Public Schools serving children and youth experiencing homelessness. During the past 10 years, Rebecca earned her M.E. in school counseling and became the director for Project Connect. Going beyond the letter of the law, Rebecca has worked tirelessly to develop and implement innovative programs and partnerships within the schools and community that meet the social, emotional, and academic needs of the children and youth served by Project Connect. Rebecca has recently begun presenting on best practices for serving youth experiencing in homelessness, and she has joined me in the bomb shelter live at the National Youth At-Risk Conference in Savannah, Georgia, where we're celebrating 30 years of working with young people. Rebecca, welcome to the Bomb Studio. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me here. You guys should see it. She looks so <laughs> stiff. Loosen your ass up. Girl, you I working with told, a serious population. I didn't say you couldn't. <laughs> just, just don't touch my stuff. Okay. Just hold the all microphone. Right. There you go. You so cool. So, well, so first of all, let's backtrack. Let's talk about being at the National Youth Average Conference. So you presented today, and let's talk about the session. And how um, the session went really well. I have been attending this conference for about 10 years. I love the conference, the energy, the um, diversity. And just the relevance of the topics. Um, and so I hope to present one day. And today we presented and um, it went really well. So how did it feel being a participant for the last 10 years, nine years, 10 years, 
coming and see all these facilitators, and then you get the opportunity to present in some in, in front of your colleagues, in front of people who get a chance to hang out with you outside of the conference. How did that feel standing in a room presenting in this conference? It's 30 it, years. It's a big deal. Yeah, it felt right. Um, I thought I was going to be nervous, um, but when I got up there, it just everything flowed, and we got really good feedback, and the energy was good, and we tried to make the session relevant and interesting, and I thought it went so I heard it went great. And so I think you're more nervous being in the, in right here during yeah, this, this interview. Yeah, this podcast <laughs> is making me more nervous than the presentation. Well, we want you to loosen up because you live in Cincinnati. And listen, True. you can't be walking around <laughs> Cincinnati being all nervous and you working with a population that some people find to be very, very challenging. Let's talk about homelessness in Cincinnati. Where What's the state of homelessness for you, for young people in Cincinnati? So we serve in our program about 3,000 students a year, and I think that that is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, the problem with any program is that we never have enough funding and staff to really, you know, breach our hands as far as we see necessary. Um, we work really hard to find kids. We find them in shelters. We find them in the streets. We find them bouncing from place to place. But youth homelessness is real. Um, it is something that I think that we as a country need to pay more attention to. There's so little funding um, directed towards programs that serve youth. And the only way to really try to change this trajectory is to help them be able to get through school. And there is, there's federal regulations that mandate that school districts provide students with uniforms and school supplies and transportation. Does that fall under the McKinley-Bento Homeless Act? I almost had it. Um, the okay. McKinney Vento Homeless Education. Oh, my accent just jacked it up. Huh? <laughs> it might have been your accent. <laughs> That's that know. Spanish accent. Yes, oh, yes, that yes. Is? See, I mm-hmm. forgot you were part Spanish. <laughs> okay. <Go ahead>. well. <laughs> um, yeah, so there is a federal act that mandates school districts remove educational barriers for homeless um, children. But what the act mandates is not enough. I mean, we can't just throw backpacks and school uniforms at kids and expect them to be successful in school. Um, our kids are dealing with severe trauma. They don't have the, their basic needs being met. I mean, it's very basic level, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you don't have food and safety and security, you're not going to be in a position to learn. And so I have been re- working really hard within our district to create um, – programming and resources for our kids that go way beyond the letter of the law. So we recently opened a resource center. Um, That was my dream, and my superintendent supported me. So um, we are still in the beginning stages, but we're going to have tutoring. We're going to have counseling. We have clothing, undergarments, hygiene items. And um, my staff, I'll say I'm a hustler because (laughs) I can't pay for the majority of those things with the uh, funds that we get from the federal government. So I'm always hitting the pavement, asking people for money. <laughs> so where does that hustle come from? What is that hustle background where you, where you, but you're hustling for some, something positive to get the, so where does you that know, come from? To be Okay. So I can actually tell you, um, I think the reason this works is speaks to me the way it does is because I was in that situation um, as a teenager my dad lost his job and our house got foreclosed on. And so, you know, part of my family went here and part of them went there. And I'm from Canada. So we were 
living in Cincinnati and my family went back to Canada and I stayed. Um, and I just kind of couch surfed and I didn't have a green card. So I had to had to hustle. <laughs> so this is this work is personal to you. You know, I never realized it was until um, I think it was a couple of months ago. I was talking about it to a group of funders and somebody asked me that question. They asked me why it was so important to me. And I really I, I told my story and that was the first time I'd ever actually put the two together, which is weird. I mean pretty much obvious that that's why it would be so important but it is personal yeah so do you see yourself in a lot of the young people that you come across and do many of them remind you of the situation that you had gone through sure and just like me like a lot of them don't see the big picture they don't see um, outside of their circumstances and um, I always think about the one thing that made a difference for me was this one particular lady Um, it was a neighbor she just believed in me. And I told her I was going to go to hair school. And she was like, you aren't going to hair school. You're going to college. I can see you in hair school. You guys can't see it. She is a diva. Got the hair <laughs> laid. Yeah. <laughs> and I was going to go to hair school. <laughs> so, but she wouldn't let me. She, she, I mean, and not that anything is wrong with hair mm-hmm. school. She mm-hmm. just said, I see you working. She always told me she saw me working um, with people, you know, in, in this, in education or social work. And I remember the time thing, like, I don't have time for college. I need to figure out how to make money. And that's the situation a lot of my students are in. So what's the huge confusion or the, that generates the most debate about homelessness? Because there is a huge confusion about how do we qualify someone mm-hmm. as being ho- homeless? Transitional yeah. housing, shelter. Can you break that down for us? I can. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, so the HUD definition of homeless is anyone who's in a shelter in the streets. And so that is um, not aligned with McKinney-Vento definition of homeless. The McKinney-Vento definition is anybody who fix, who lacks fixed, adequate, or regular nighttime residency, including those who are in substandard housing. So we have families who are um, what we call couch surfing. They're bouncing from place to place. But if that, um, if that couch surfing is because of economic reasons, which it typically is, then they qualify. Um, we have teenagers who are kicked out um, due to a variety of reasons um, or run away. We have a lot of students who leave home due to parents' drug addictions. Um, and those students really just bounce from place to place. They might go through a shelter a couple of times, and then they kind of go from friend to friend or family member to family member, and they qualify, um, as well as students who have housing but don't have utilities. Um, that is considered substandard housing. And so it's not considered adequate housing. And so they qualify as well. So if you are, are, are all families that share housing considered homeless, like say, for example, if your family was living with my family, would you be considered homeless? No, um, not necessarily. So it really depends on the reason. Um, we do have an entire discussion before um, determining eligibility regarding what whatever led up to that. Um, a lot of families will cohabitate because it's their cultural norm, you know, and that doesn't mean that they are considered to be homeless. Um, but we have a lot of So kids. I need to figure out in my family, was that our culture? Because we had a whole bunch of folks there. <laughs> so do we. So do we. <laughs> I don't know what culture that I, That may be like, in my family, some lazy folks that don't want to work. That may be the culture that's in my family. I got to think about that. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe well, that's the excuses my brothers and sisters been using for quite some time myself. I mean, I have a brother who, mm-hmm. for financial reasons, <laughs> seems to always end up on my sofa. Oh, um, there we go. But, yes. 
your family members who are not working and can't afford yeah. housing who live with you, they would qualify or their children would qualify. So what's your biggest concern about policy right now as it relates to homeless youth? And what, what needs to be changed, you think, in order to be more effective well, uh, for working with the kids that you're working with in, in other places as well? So we, I mean, it's, it's uh, it almost always boils down to funding. We appreciate the funding we get from the federal government, yeah. um, but it only allows us to do the bare minimum. We want to be able to really impact performance outcomes and graduation, the social and emotional components of dealing with homelessness. And um, I don't have a team large enough to be able to do what I really want to do. And so that's you know, part of my presentation today was talking about how I really try to tap into other resources so that I'm able to hit some of those things that I think are important. Um, we want to be able to set, we want to be able to set children in, or youth into the world, whether they're going to college, whether they're going to pursue a trade, or whether they're going to work. We want them to be able to do that, having had all the support that they can possibly receive in high school that addresses some of the trauma that um, because we really don't want to just send kids out, out in the world to fail and then the cycle just continues. So do you, but do you think that money, throwing money at this, this situation will actually solve it? I mean, it can increase your salary and some other folks and, That's you know, not get about some, my salary. <laughs> it's not about, I know it's not that about you. That's not what this is and about. And so, but again, <laughs> no, is I mean, throwing money at, at this problem will really shift where we are as a country as it relates to homelessness and, and as, as it relates to young people? Well, I can only speak in terms of, you know, young people. And mm. I'll tell you this. Um, my staff and I went through this training on ACEs, acute childhood experiences. Yes. It's mm. kind of a new catchphrase. Mm. Um, and the training was really powerful. But at the end, I asked the um, doctor who gave us the training. He, he speaks nationally on ACEs. I said, well, what can we do to fix it? Almost two-thirds of people have gone through it some sort of acute experience I'm sure both you and I have so what can we do to fix it and he said the number one thing you can do to combat the effects of trauma is to build a relationship and um, in our schools where I'm able to have staff there to build relationships with kids we have way better outcomes and so when I say money I just mean so I can you know have enough staff to be able to be in the schools we have 50-some schools. I don't have staff in every school on a regular basis. But if I had the ability to have staff in every school building relationships with kids, I think we could be so much more influential. I mean, I have maybe 10 schools where I have staff there regularly. Those kids have way better outcomes. It's because we're there. We're building relationships. We're walking them through different things. We're checking their grades. We're checking their attendance. When they're not showing up, we're calling them or going to get them. So let's let's talk about some success stories about some of the young people that have come through Project Connect, uh, who's come through Cincinnati Public Schools that were homeless and is doing great. Let, let's talk about some of those stories because we never talk about the success stories. We don't. You're right. Let's hear. Let's hear some of those success stories. I had uh, my very first year. I had a girl. Um, she was 17, high school, and. Her mom was, I think, on heroin. Anyway, her mom couldn't care for her. And she, um, I went to the school to visit with her, and she was filthy, um, tired, didn't have a book bag, didn't have you know, regular uniform items. And I sat down with her, and we talked about everything that was going on. 
and I got her a spot. There was no room at the youth shelter, so they gave her a spot at the men's drop-in center, which is the worst place to be. And I said, I don't want you going there. She's like, no, I want to go there. I just want somewhere to be able to sleep at night. So she went there, and she stayed there, and I gave her, you know, a backpack, of course, and uniform items and a coat and hygiene items and pretty much anything I could give her and met with her regularly, and she came to school every single day from that drop-in center. They gave they set, set her away from the men to sleep, but still, I mean, and she was so appreciative of being there. She graduated valedictorian of her class. She went on to the University of Cincinnati. She now has her degree in business, and she goes around and speaks for the Homeless Coalition to youth in the high school. I'm so proud of her. Yeah, she's I can doing, see it on your face. Oh, yeah. I am. I yeah, mean, yeah. and she was. she's just so resilient. So what did she have that other kids may not have? Again, you know, it's something about her. You use the word resilience, and we hear that a lot in the work that we're doing. But what, what are some other things that she, that she had that maybe some other kids that you're working with might not have? She really, I mean, she had a lot of drive, and she really, really, really did not ever want to be in that situation. And she had enough vision to be able to see her way out of it. You know, I have a lot of kids that don't want to be in that situation, but it's hard to see past your circumstance. I have a girl who we sent off to college last year, and she's already dropped out because she wants to be able to work to pay her bills now. She can't see that if she, you know, just used her financial aid properly. I mean, she had a scholarship didn't buy all these other things that in the long run, if she finished this school, she would be in a much better position, which that's often the case with any child. But, you know, a lot of our kids who have never seen the outsides of their environment don't know what else is out there. Um, I actually have spent some time the last several years talking to people who grew up in, you know, severe poverty and rose above it. And I always ask them what was like the thing that, that made you, you know, stick with it and, and, pursue your education or whatever it was that got them out of that situation. And almost every single one of them has told me exposure. It was either like a coach that brought them out to their house for sleepovers or, you know, somebody from their church who brought them into another neighborhood where they were able to see, you know, a different family environment or different, you know, living situation. And I think that so much of it is exposure. And the young lady I told you about who was so so successful, she did not have exposure. She just truly... Her situation was so bad, she never wanted to be there again. Have you? Are you familiar with the film, um, the Liz Murray story from Harvard, from Almost homeless to Harvard? Harvard? Yeah. Yes, yes. And so her story, you know, very, very similar. What's mm-hmm. interesting, when you think about her, when you think of the face of homelessness, she's not the reflection of what you think homeless. This was a white female. Sure. She wasn't a person of color. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of the young people that you work with, uh, being in Cincinnati, many of those young people are, are people of color. So a woman from Nova Scotia, let's talk about your ethnic background <laughs> and the connection to that, to working with these black and brown babies in Cincinnati who are representing this. Co- now, I know you work with all people, but sure, sort of how do you do. connect that? You come from Nova Scotia. I mentioned Liz Murray's story. And it's interesting. She got all this, you know, all this press and press and press press about that. I'm like, okay, if Liz looked, you know, looked more like us with a little dark complexion, would she had gotten more press from that? Because there are tons of stories like that. So let's talk about your story. There are tons of stories. Being from Nova Scotia, you know, talk about your background, coming to Cincinnati, working with this population, you know, connect those dots for us. 
Okay, so you were asking about superpowers. Yeah. Um, and when you asked me that question before we started, I kind of thought about what my superpower was. And it's always been the ability to connect with kids. Um, and I think... So Okay, so my background, I grew tell, up in... Tell your, super, okay. your superpower. Go ahead, hit the superpower My again. superpower, um, it's relevant. Okay. Um, it's just the ability to build relationships with kids. And I think that um, not judging is so important and also believing in them. Um, one of the things that I still do now, even in my position, I had to kind of fight to be able to do this, is I still coach at the high school. What sport? And, um and try. Oh, that's right. I did see. Oh, yeah. I was wondering. I was trying to figure out the connection with all of these girls and the cheerleading. And, all, and I was like, well, maybe she just likes cheerleading. So I, I saw no, you. I actually don't love you don't. cheerleading. No, I love uh, track. She likes the cheerleaders out there. For those cheerleaders that listen, she's not talking about you guys. She'd just rather do something else. No, right. So, no, I love the girls. Yes. So, I love the cheerleaders. Um, <laughs> but the cheerleading. Cheerleading has never been my thing, but I will say I've learned a lot. Um, okay. So, the reason I coach them is so I can still have relationship with them because being in, in a management position, you don't get to have as much hands-on with kids. And I really miss yeah, that. They, you're the boss now. You're a boss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's been an adjustment. It has. I miss the kids. I really do. Yeah. But um, I do keep trying to think of what I do now as able to impact the large at a larger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up in Canada in Nova Scotia. Um, didn't know who my daddy was uh, until I, later on in life. Um, I am. I was brought up by my mom and my stepdad, who was a wonderful stepdad. My real father was in my life until I was about four, and then stepped out of it just due to to drama. Um, he was, he's Lebanese, so he was Arabic, and growing up, I always was asked what I was. Um, but let me just say, I love Lebanese food. <laughs> I love Any, it, too. Oh, man. Yeah, being a good? vegan, I can always find some good stuff Yeah, there. you can. Yes, oh, yeah. yes, yes. So yes. you probably, oh, the labna? Yes. Um, baba ganoush. Ba- oh, baba ganoush, tabbouleh. Oh, <laughs> yeah. man. the it um so delicious. The, grape the leaves. Grape, there we go. You saw me rapping. Yes, the Do- grape leaves. Dolte. All right, Dolte. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so we'll talk about food. Keep going. Yeah, okay. Hamas. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, you know, reconnected with my father and his family later on in life. Um, but growing up in Canada, we did not have that much stability. My stepdad, um, he had a good job for many years and then lost it. And then we moved around a lot, which is how we ended up in Cincinnati. Um, and I remember when I moved to Cincinnati, we moved to a neighborhood that had really good schools, um, but was extremely segregated. <clears throat> and I'll never forget my first day walking into my art class. I looked around and all the black kids were at one table and all the white kids were at another table. And I remember going home that day and telling my mom, like, it's really strange here. All the black kids sit together and all the white kids sit together. And um, I went to Sycamore High School and the kids were not very accepting of me um, at all. And so actually it was the black kids who kind of welcomed me into their, you know, groups, friend groups. And so I was always kind of grew up. um, My best friends were all black. My ex-husband was black. My kids are black. Um, And so I think that I naturally have, and and actually the lady I ended up living with when I was um, bouncing around was African-American. And so I've always been strangely a little more comfortable around African-American people and most recently um, around 
my dad and his family, who I've gotten to know over the last several years. Um, and so I think that my students always <laughs> say I've got a lot of flavor. Uh, they <laughs> yeah, they connect the with yeah. me really easily. Yeah. Um, they just do. I don't know why that is. Yeah. but Well, you just said it. You, your circle, you know, you felt a connection. You mentioned in high school. You made a statement when you said earlier that folks have always asked me, what are you? Yeah. How does that how does that make you feel like now? And then if you go back to your younger self, that same question, how did that make you feel then? I don't know why that just made me feel emotional. Um, I think that um, I'm known to to bring out the tears on sound bombing. I'm not doing all that on the podcast. (laughs) Just don't start Um, waving. What is the waving of the eyes? Like you're trying not to mess up. Oh, 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 that's it right there. Okay, does it work? It does because you can go like this. Okay. Um, So so that question, you know, what are you? So growing up, um, my mom did not really tell me much about my father um, until I was a little bit older. Um, I guess they really wanted to sever ties. Um, That's a whole nother story. And so um, I didn't know what ethnicity I was. We grew up next to a a Mi'kmaq Indian Reserve, and I used to – my friends used to joke with me and say, like, maybe your mom had an affair with a Native American guy. <laughs> and I used to ask her because she was, always did my hair in two braids, oh. long braids. I used to be like, Mom, you sure I'm not partly Native <laughs> American? Um, and when I found out, it was kind of like just a knowing. And it was strange because my brother, um, I have one brother who's, um, we have the same mother and father. And he's in the same boat. He didn't He didn't even know my dad when he was little because he was a baby when our biological father kind of stepped out of our lives. And um, we used to always say, my other brother and I used to always say, well, Aaron looks like an Arab. He sure looks like an Arab because he does. Um, but when I found out that I was an Arab, it just made sense to me. I was kind of like, okay. Like, I just wanted to you know. You found out at, at what age? I was 20-something. So you found out at 20. So is your mother from Lebanon as well? No, Lebanese? My, just my dad is Lebanese. Just, just yeah, your dad. Yeah, my mom is French-Canadian. So so did you, are, are you embracing that culture even more? Yes, or? yes, I so am. So I could see you light up. Yeah, light I am. Up, yeah. I really love the, the culture, and I've gone to visit my dad a lot and got to know a lot about him and recipes with me. So now I try to cook Lebanese food, and I go to a lot of the Lebanese restaurants in Cincinnati and they're just so warm and embracing. And, and it's funny. Um, they all know right away that I'm Lebanese. And I remember saying to my mom, like, if you hadn't told me, I would have thought those people were crazy, you know? Um, but they've been teaching me a little bit of the language. And so is my dad. Um, and I really do want to learn more about it. And even about, um, I am not, I'm a spiritual person. I'm not religious, but I'm interested in, the Muslim religion, which is, you know, my dad's family. My grandfather was a Hajj, so he was um, a Muslim. And my dad, I don't know he practices. <laughs> no. but <laughs> so are you, so you're raising these three, three black boys. I am. Uh, are you introducing any of the culture to them at all? Yeah. And in fact, my 10 year old the other day, he said, mom, I just want to make sure of something. <laughs> He's funny. He was like, I'm only 25% white, right? I said, yes, just 25%. He was like, good, because I don't like white people. <laughs> I was like, Mike, you can't not like a whole race. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, I think he feels that way because he's had some experiences with his older brother that have scared him. Um, and, and I have spent a lot of time the last several years talking to all of my sons about, you know, 
being careful with the police and, you know, not being able to do certain things that, you know, white people might be able to do. And so sometimes I worry that I'm beating that into their heads too much for my 10 year old to feel like he didn't want any parts of white in him because I, like I said to him, I said, there are a lot of wonderful white people. Um, like your grandmother. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, let's start with Nana first. <laughs> she is a nice white woman. Uh, she probably has a nice amount of money for you when you pass on. <laughs> I don't know. But she I, has all that now. <laughs> but but, I, but that <laughs> but she is so, nice. So let's think about that. How do you feel having to explain that to your boys? Like having to say to them, "Be careful with the police. Don't get caught with your hands in your pocket." If the police does this, I think of a song Bruce Springsteen wrote called 41 Shots, what's called American Skin. It was written right after the Amadou Diallo case in New York City. And it's interesting, a woman named Lima, the story goes on, he's, she's on her knee getting her five-year-old son dressed to go to school. And she's putting his jacket on, his backpack, and she's having this story. She's having to have this conversation with him about the police in New York. And, and we're not saying all police are bad, but she's prepared. How does that make you feel that you have to do that on a daily basis? It, it makes me so sad. It makes me so sad. Um, in fact. Because you can easily have the same conversation if they were 100 percent Lebanese as well. Well, I was just Think I was about just that. about to say that, um, you know, my, my grandmother's from Syria. And right now um, our president elect mm. <laughs> um, has, you know, banned the Syrian refugees from coming here. And there's been a lot of, you know, obviously a lot of racism and bias towards people of Arabic descent here in America as well. So yes, I I would easily have that conversation with them if they were fully Arabic. Um, I think that any minority here has to follow different rules. Um, you know, it it's I was um, talking to my team member downstairs before coming up here and she was like, you know, it's interesting. I've never had to have those conversations with my daughters. Uh, white and has two twin daughters and I was telling her that my oldest son one time was pulled over when he was 17 he had just gotten his driver's license and he was driving to a basketball game with his friends um, just at Xavier University so local university and when the police pulled him over he reached for his wallet and the police officer coming up to the car pulled out a gun and called for backup and so my son said within like 60 seconds, there was five police cars surrounding him and his friends, and they got them out of the car, had them laying face down on the ground, saw the registration, and it wasn't in his name, it was in his dad's name, but they clearly had the same last name. Um, said, you know, the car may be stolen, had guns to their backs. And when I found this out, I was shaking. I was so furious with him um, because he had reached for his wallet. And that's not fair. Um but I mean, I told I, I remember just screaming at him. I was like, I told you a million times, put your hands on the steering wheel. I was like, if you can't do that, I'm not going to let you drive. Period. Um, and I was, I was, it was because I was so scared. I realized like that cop could e- just as easily have pulled the trigger and said he was scared that my son was reaching for a gun. And so I have had to have you know that conversation with my at that time six year old and. I've actually, we have done like pretend I'm mm. the cop pulling you over, you know, in the car because I want to make sure that my boys know, you know, what to do if they're pulled over. So you're doing the skits in the house, you're doing, doing the run the through, 
Yeah. Wow. Because it scares me. And I'm from Canada, so I'm not as used to yeah, this. You guys don't have all those guns up there. We don't have the guns. <laughs> we do not. Um, my mom, when we moved here and I stayed here, she's like, I don't know why you're staying there. It's so scary there. And I remember thinking she was being super dramatic. I was like, oh, my God, my mom's hella dramatic. But she's right. I mean. So this story, this narrative about you makes sense. It, it makes sense that you're working with this disparate population of young people that are homeless. It makes sense that you have the superpower about connecting because you know now raising three black boys, uh, you're raising three black boys who have, have Arab ancestry who could easily, when you're talking about being a black boy, it could be just an Arab kid who's then sort of being pulled over. So, so it makes a lot of sense. Um, what do you want people to know about homeless young people that they may not know? Well, when I present to teachers um, and school personnel in the community, I always tell them often children who are in homeless situations are going to have behaviors that seem like unruly behaviors. Um, And we really need to pay attention to where that behavior is coming from. Um, I read something that said usually the kids that are, you know, acting up the most, exactly how it went, but acting up the most are the ones that are in need of the most love. And I always try to press that upon people. Kids are not, you know, quote unquote, bad for no reason. I mean, they're usually dealing with something. Um, we, in our program, we have a summer program that serves children five to 12. And these kids come with a ton of behavior issues. But by the end of the summer, once they know that you love them and they know your expectations, they're well behaved. They really are. Um, and you have, I feel like it's an educator's responsibility to figure out how to serve our children. Um, because anybody in your classroom, homelessness you know homeless children do not wear a sign on their forehead you know they don't have their aces number on their forehead we don't know what they've been through but normally if you're seeing behaviors they're coming from some sort of trauma so um i know earlier you talked about your superpower Mm -hmm. um this is the fun part of the show (laughs) okay where i call the super bomb question all right so i'm going to throw out some questions to you okay and i want you to Respond as quickly as possible. What sound or noise do you love? The ocean. What are you reading now? Something that you're reading. Um, I am reading a story about the Native American um, uh, called the Reformatory Schools. They sent Native American kids in Canada in the 60s and 70s. Um, And I cannot think of the name of the book. Oh, I didn't know that they did the boarding schools. I didn't know the they did that in schools. Canada. Okay. Oh, yeah, they did that they in did Canada. They did in the U.S., okay. Yeah, okay. so I'm reading a book. Of, a, a lady, she wrote the book about her own life and mm-hmm. how she was abused by the priest at the school, and it's a pretty powerful book. And then I'm reading a boring book, skills. Okay. What are, what are you listening to? Um, You're going to laugh at me. I'm listening to Quiet Storm right now. <laughs> Yeah. I've been because I think because I'm in the South and I've been listening to Marvin Gaye, so I, I came you. across this quiet storm the last couple of nights. I've been listening to that okay. in my hotel room. Hey, keep it calm. <laughs> if you could have a gigantic billboard, if you can have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? To treat people with compassion. What's your favorite word? Inshallah. 
Okay. Oh, okay. That means that was, God willing. All right. What's an unusual habit or observed thing that you love to do? I love to go to thrift stores. Okay. There I love thrift, thrift store shopping. Here's another one. Um, when you feel overwhelmed and or unfocused or lost, think about this. What do you do? Oh, I, I know what I do. I, um, I always play smooth grooves and I cook. <laughs> I do. It's very meditative for yeah, me. I got you. I yeah. love to cook and I love music. So what advice would you give to little Rebecca? The advice I would give a younger mm-hmm. me would be to um, not have to learn everything the hard way. So I remember my stepdad telling me once, he said, Rebecca, you always have to learn everything the hard way. He said, why don't you just listen sometimes? And um, <laughs> looking back on my life, I wish I'd just listen sometimes. Can, well, you a rebel rouser. You stayed in trouble. You sometimes. You edgy. Edgy, yeah. Okay. Edgy. I was trying to do the right thing, but I, I was a boundary. I got sure. you. And I, I always you. kind of thought like what I, my idea is the right idea. So I, I wasn't. A- Does that help you engage this population that you're working with? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, And even like I was saying, how I coach cheer. Um, that you're so excited about. I am. I'm excited <laughs> about it. I'm excited about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. I teach at um, our, our inner city high school where um, there is a lot of behavior issues. And it is funny because they listen to me. <laughs> um, even when I was away this weekend, we were having some issues with them and the assistant coach. And I FaceTimed them like. Um, but I think a lot of that is I have told them some of the things that I did and what I learned from those things and why I would do things differently. So I never try to. Not like act like I don't understand why they're that they're making. Who who are some of the most vulnerable homeless youth that you're most concerned about? You think because you mentioned there's a there's a there are a couple and I don't want to you know I can mention it, but who are some of the most vulnerable that you're most concerned about? Um, the children that I am the most concerned about are always the ones who are sleeping in the streets. Um, especially um, I have a population of kids who might have parents who are addicts. I mean, I had a girl who, when she was five, her mom was selling her out heroin. And so those kids are just so desperate to get away that sometimes they end up in not-so-good situations themselves. Um, older men saying, well, you can stay here, but you have to do certain things to stay here. Um, it's kind of a form, I guess, of sex trafficking. And so it's that population of kids who I worry about, the, the ones who are not in one of our shelters, or not staying where we know they're safe. Now, aren't um, we seeing an increase of the LGBTQ mm-hmm. community of teenagers? Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so we, we are definitely seeing an increase in homelessness in the LGBTQ community. Um, a lot of that is because um, a lot of those children come from their parents or parent accepting their um, sexual orientation and will kick them out of the home. And so it's, it's sometimes difficult for them to feel comfortable going to places where, um, you know, if they're a male, going to a place where it's an all-male facility, you know, um, a female going to a place where it's an all-female facility. And so they will often land in situations where I think older, especially with our um, young boys, older men are preying on them and putting them in situations where they're having to do certain things sexually in order to um, get housing, to be able to live with that person. So, so any suggestions for any teachers, social workers, or any other 
any other uh, group of people that's working with this population um, that aren't familiar with the homelessness community? Any suggestions that you might have for them? I just ask um, that they pay attention to students. I mean, if you see students who are sleeping more than who are late or absent more than usual, are not um, who seem nervous or easily triggered, you know, those kids usually have something going on, and so pay attention to them and build relationships so that they're comfortable talking to the adult in their life. Um, we have such an ability to be able to impact at the school level, but you have to have that relationship. These kids are not going to talk to you if you don't. You hear that? Relationships, relationships, relationships. I know. I say it all the time. My mm-hmm. staff are always like, okay, we get it. We get it. it. We get it. All right, yeah. we're done. Thank you. Peace. All right, you're welcome. All right, out of here. Rebecca Beach, I would like to thank you for joining me in the bomb shelter. It's been great talking with you. Uh, you are truly, truly a gift. You have some amazing superpowers. And as I always believed that something wonderful is about to happen, that some people miss the message because they are too busy looking for the mess. And we owe it to our kids and our country to rise to this challenge and ensure that homeless students of today do not become the homeless adults. Yes, so I'd like to thank yes, you for thank joining you. me. Take care. Peace.